welcome to the Things I Wish I'd Known podcast, where guests share learning from life experiences to help others on the same path. Welcome back to the Things I Wish I'd Known podcast. It's Sophia Giblin here, your podcast host. This week, I've been talking to Shamash Aladina, one of the UK's leading mindfulness experts and an author of Mindfulness for Dummies, as well as a number of other books. And we're talking today about all things mindfulness, therapy, compassion, kindness, and how we can all use mindfulness every day to make our lives better. So I really hope you enjoy this podcast. This is a really fascinating one. I love the science behind the mindfulness. So I hope you enjoy. So I'm here today with Shamash Aladina, the um, author of Mindfulness for Dummies, not just Mindfulness for Dummies, but an author of five books on yep. mindfulness. Yep. Shamash is the co-founder of the Museum of Happiness and your mindfulness teacher training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I am mindfulness teacher training. I'm the whole thing. <laughs> in the person, in body. I don't know what I was even saying. Oh my gosh. That you was might, good though. The rest you, of it was brilliant. <laughs> you might do a better job introducing yourself. Shamash, <laughs> welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to be on the show. Thank you so much. We're very excited to hear about the things that you wish that you'd known earlier. And I'm super excited about your take on everything from a mindfulness perspective. Yeah. So why don't you kick off telling us a little bit more about you? Um, okay, I'll just briefly share my story about how I got into mindfulness mm. and this whole museum of happiness thing. So actually, I was very kind of driven was when I was young. I was very much into science and like a typical perhaps Asian kid. You know, my parents were like, oh, I'm hoping he would become a doctor or maybe maybe if something goes wrong, an engineer. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I was kind of building myself up for that and I was good at that. And I realize now, it's one of the things I can talk about a bit more later on. It was, I kind of built my self-esteem mm. on my kind of academic su- success and getting the grades A's and stuff. So yeah, that was... Um, so yeah, we got through school, got all my grade A's, and I remember going to my um, careers advisor saying, hey, I'm thinking of becoming a doctor. And the first thing he said is, did you know they've got the highest suicide rate? I'm like, no, but you've started to put me off already. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, I, I realized it would be a very kind of challenging profession. So I kind of looked at the list of other things and I was just basing my decision on money, actually. Mm. So the highest kind of thing that I would get the most money was chemical engineering. And included chemistry, physics, maths, all the things I was good at. So off I went to university, studied chemical engineering and started to kind of struggle. Like the first year I did well, but when I tried it as a job in the summer, didn't really kind of enjoy it that much. Um, we were designing an oil rig in Indonesia, based in an office sitting in London. I'm like, something doesn't feel right. Didn't, didn't feel comfortable doing it. And so um, I went to a philosophy class and I discovered mindfulness there. And one thing led to another and started to, first of all, be a school teacher, teaching in school. And then ended up um, doing kind of the whole career, writing book on mindfulness for dummies. And one thing led to another, we can go into that more detail later, but I uh, got passionate about happiness mm. and started a museum of happiness, as you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow, so that was quite a big jump then from, from your engineering to... Yeah being a teacher yeah so because I didn't I was passionate about science and I loved science at school Um, but when I discovered mindfulness I thought wow this is such an amazing skill I wish I'd learned this when I was younger I was Mm. only age 20 at the time but I was like oh my god I'm so old and now I'm learning about (laughs) mindfulness I wish I'd learned it when I was a child and so I actually lost interest in engineering and I just about passed my third year got through my fourth year 
But I just really wanted. To, uh, I wish. I wished that I could kind of. I wish when I was at school, I would been. I was taught mindfulness, and there was actually only one or two schools at the time that were doing mindfulness. And one of them was this school, St James in Twickenham. So I thought, okay, let me do teacher training, and if I get a job there, then I will do that as a job. So that's what I did. I I applied for that jo- particular job, and I got it. And I I was a school teacher there for almost ten years, and this. I was I was teaching the kids from age ten to eighteen, and I was not only just teaching them science, but also teaching them a philosophy class once a week, and also teaching them some kind of meditation. So it was like a quiet time at the beginning and the end of each day, and there's also like a small pause at the beginning and the end of each class, and that was good for the children and also good for the teachers. There was that sense of grounding. Mm. Um, so and then at first, although I found teaching difficult at first. I discovered that actually learning new things and teaching is like my real passion and I was just reflecting on what my values are and I just absolutely love it like on weekends and stuff if I've got any free time I would be reading books doing online that's what I was doing yesterday doing online courses until late in the night or studying stuff and creating ways of sharing it with others so mm. I'm really really passionate about that um yeah, so yeah, that's how I ended up going from you know something like chemical engineering, designing or rig, to actually being passionate about mindfulness yeah. and happiness. The other thing is that about mindfulness is that actually my passion underlying that is science, yeah. which is actually a search for what's true and what actually works. And I was very <coughs> skeptical actually at first in going into the meditation stuff because of that. That just sounds very airy fairy. But actually, when I started to look at the research and the science and the evidence behind it. I thought, actually, no, this is really, this can really make a difference in people's lives. And I continue to be, like, really passionate about that. Like, if there's something, you know, that a guru says, and if it doesn't match up with what science says, I'll definitely go more with the science. Because of, I want to be able to share things with people that that's been found to work. Um, so that's definitely been, like, an underlying thread. Um, but even below <coughs> the science, I think, uh, just reflecting on the way here, actually, it's because of... Uh, I've always searched for what is true and you can find what is true in physics or you could find it in you know metaphysical studies or observing your own mind but trying to work out what is actually truth what is actual reality and what's most um, beneficial for people to experience so, yeah that's how I got into it yeah that's brilliant and so well, I have a question for you then about this um I wonder how many people think of mindfulness as being a bit woo woo do you know that I hate yeah. that phrase yeah but um what you're saying is actually you're looking at the science of it. Yeah, so just to explain to you, like, um, if they look at, if you look, research all the different therapies, evidence-based therapies for people who are suffering, which almost is everyone, depression, anxiety, uh, all sorts of kind of mental health challenges, and I can explain later why so many people are struggling with that. But if you look at that, the evidence-based approaches, until a few years ago, the best one compared to things like taking out antidepressants and stuff was CBT cognitive behavioral therapy but now more and more research is building on the fact that actually if you train people mindfulness which is about cultivating a present moment awareness and changing your relationship to your thoughts and your emotions so you're more like the observer of it rather than being entangled in it that has so much so much kind of positive uh, health benefits so all the science is actually going towards mindfulness and even uh, i think I read somewhere, I'm not sure if this is true, but like 90 to 95% of therapists have actually been trained in mindfulness or practiced mindfulness in some way because it's so beneficial. And even being something like a therapist, it's so easy to get burnout if you're kind of experiencing people's kind of trauma and difficulties again and again, day after day. So mindfulness can be so helpful for that. Um, 
So yeah, let me just um, kind of share a little bit about why that is. Um, the human brain, so I'm gonna be sharing some information about the latest science I've been reading, and it's a form of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. Have you heard of that? I have, yeah. Cool. So uh, the basis of that is that the, the human mind creates suffering, and it's actually natural for our human brains to create suffering, because if we are like an animal form of brain with, with this new kind of modern brain fixed on top of it, which is at least 200,000 years old or longer, which is a few seconds in, in uh, evolution time. So it's very, very new. And basically it's a really bad design in the sense that I could be sitting right here having a lovely time with Sophia on a podcast and then I suddenly remember, oh no, I left something on at home. I left the cooker on at home or something. And whether that's true or not, just that thought can actually generate a lot of suffering. So our minds can very easily go into the past and the future. <laughs> a great example I saw, <laughs> I heard uh, yesterday, was imagine if you had a dog and you left your dog outside, you closed the door, you forgot, and, and the dog was outside in the rain. You open the door in the morning, the dog comes running in, very happy that it's inside now, it's the next day. But if you left your husband or wife locked outside <laughs> all night in the rain, when you open the door, they wouldn't come running in, giving you a big hug and be quite so happy. And this is, this is how a human brain is very different to an animal brain in that it starts thinking about what should have happened and this was wrong and this was right and I wish this had happened. And in our, in our modern day world, particularly, there's so much potential for the suffering to be generated. And so mindfulness gives us the skills to, first of all, notice these stream of thoughts that are coming in our heads. And secondly, not taking them to be so, so true, or at least finding out whether they're helpful or not and learning the skills to be able to step back from that. And especially in acceptance and commitment therapy and the, the theories they're based on, it's based on very, very high quality studies, thousands of randomized control trials. Um, so I, I believe it's really the cutting edge science stuff actually, rather than a woo woo. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, it's a long answer to your you question, yeah, but yeah, passionate yeah. about that. <laughs> I think it's it's really good to know that it is scientific and evidence based, and yeah. because there is, I know that personally, mindfulness meditation has been so helpful for me, mm. so helpful. Like particularly in periods of anxiety, mm. I read The Power of Now Great. by Eckhart. I'll read it later. <laughs> now, read read it. Read it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, no, he doesn't know that this book. <laughs> Um, yeah, and no, um, it just reminded me of kind of disidentifying myself from the stories. I was exactly. telling myself about who I am and what I do. Exactly. But I wonder, I have a question for you then about this because how, we're so, so, we can be so attached to the stories mm -hmm. because it makes us who we are. Mm -hmm. How do we get over the fear of not knowing who we are once we disidentify from the story? Interesting. So going back to... <coughs> the acceptance and therapy, uh, commitment therapy model, and also in a lot of spiritual traditions, and also even in Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now, uh, what they're saying is that it's not that we don't know who we are, but we're stepping into another form of self. So we've got our physical body self, which is you know, our physical body that we can see and ages and eventually dies. Then we've got the um, kind of mind self, which is kind of our thoughts and our emotions, which we very much identify with quite naturally unless we've been taught about this other form of self, which is the observer self. So what we're saying is that rather than identifying with the stream of thoughts and emotions and the thoughts because of many different things, but from a survival perspective, if you go back to the cavemen and women, the ones that took lots of risks, uh, the ones that were too positive were the ones that um, ended up um, getting eaten by the tigers and, all, and eating the dangerous berries. Whereas the ones that were <laughs> a lot less risky, kind of hung out at the back of the cave, 
doing a lot of mating and having lots of kids. So the ones that were more negative were actually the ones that survived. So evolutionary, we have a negativity bias. If you just leave your mind to, to kind of wonder today, how did today go? If one thing went wrong, you'll be thinking about that rather than the many things that went yes. right. Like, oh my God, it was amazing. I had, you know, tap water running and there was air for breathing and I managed to cross the road without getting injured. We don't think about that, but the one thing that went wrong, like, you know, put the wrong color sock on or something, we'd probably end up, or maybe something a bit more serious than that. Let <laughs> <laughs> me just check myself. Yeah, I'm looking no, now. No, they're, they're both same the same. Color. Same color. Yeah, that's why I will have only black socks. <laughs> Can't go wrong. Um, yeah, so I'm actually not sure where I'm going with this. Oh, yeah, we're talking about the observer self. Yeah. So by, become, by identifying with the observer self, you can actually step back from the stream of thoughts which tend to lean towards the negative and stop identifying with it. And there's many ways to do that. And one way is to, for example, reading that book like you thought of, thinking that actually these are just stories in my mind or I cannot be that which I observe. So And different types of mindfulness meditations. All these are different exercises to learn to, what they call an act is also diffuse. So rather than being stuck with your thoughts, you've got that choice, you've got that space. If there's no space there, there's no choice. Like you think that you're a useless person or you're not good enough or whatever, and then you believe that to be true and that results in the more difficult emotions. So that's why I think the observer self is a, is a wonderful concept and it's something that we can all experience because we can hear our thoughts, we can feel our emotions. So there's a part of us that's separate from that. So it's really powerful. Do you think, is there anything about it that <clears throat> kind of, un I don't want to say undermines the experience of the individual, because I guess what that's what traditional therapy is all about, right? It's let's mm. talk about the problem, mm. or, you know, what's happened to you that we need to talk about it. But actually, yeah. in mindfulness, we're saying, we just need to observe it. Yeah, yeah, it's not so much about the contents of the thought, it's the relationship to it. Oh. And so, for example, CBT, uh, there's different waves of CBT. So the first wave was behavior therapy, just changing people's behavior. But that was just like treating uh, human beings like kind of animals and just thinking about their behavior. But then there was this second wave, which was CBT, whereas you observe your thoughts and then you challenge it. So if I, if I have the thought, I'm a useless person, and I start thinking, oh, what's the evidence? Actually, no, I managed to walk and come come to this office to actually have the podcast, and it was quite difficult to find the room, but I still managed to find it. Yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm successful. Um, so so that's about challenging those thoughts. But then it, um, Mark Williams, uh, Professor Mark Williams from Oxford and other his, other his colleagues, they, did, they thought, hang on a minute, what about if we do something different rather than challenging the thoughts? Maybe it's just the relationship, just the fact that you're stepping back from the thoughts. Maybe that's what makes the difference. And so that's what they found through that research and now even more deeper in other research. It's not the thoughts that itself that are the problem. Uh, you know, I could, um, for example, this is something that everyone can do as long as you're probably not driving. But if you just say in your, in your mind, like, I can't lift my right hand, I can't lift my right hand, I can't lift my right hand. Did I manage to? Yes, yeah, yeah, okay. this is not a video, so you don't know, but <laughs> I saw it. <laughs> we've got proof. got proof. We'll show you photos later, and you can try this at, at home on your own too. So you can have the most negative thought and do the opposite of it. Just because you're having the thought doesn't mean that it has the power. It's more to do with whether you believe it to be true. Okay. It's your relationship to it that makes all the difference. And I think that's what he was trying to say in the power of now. And this is what the latest findings are in the mindfulness work as well. It's our relationship that matters, and we can change that relationship. That's so interesting. Mm, yeah. I think that is incredibly powerful. Mm. And mindfulness is such a big thing in schools now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Have you yeah. experienced any of it? Um, I haven't looked at all the latest research, but I have seen that there have been kind of more funding going into schools. 
um, and I think it's a really wonderful thing because of as I'm sure the listeners and you know that you know the mental health challenges for children is on the rise and so anything that we can do to offer children the tools and resources to be able to handle that is great and um, I think mindfulness has got I think the, the, f the fact that we're, the research is happening on whether or not it's um, beneficial for children is great and uh, from what, what I've seen the findings are really positive yeah. and the great thing is that you know you don't have to do 30 minute meditations to teach mindfulness you can do it in very short simple and for children very creative ways and maybe involve it weave it with stories and things and I think from what I've heard children really love it the younger children like primary school like you know they sometimes children even ask please miss please sir, can we actually have a mindfulness because we want to relax so uh, that kind of awareness that they're actually asking for, I think, is really beautiful. So it needs to be done in a way that's kind of fun and accessible for children. So it's like, oh no, not mindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have that kind of response. Um, but I'm really happy, to be honest. Having been a school teacher for ten years, I think it's really important for the teachers and also particularly the head teachers as well. So I'm hoping that they kind of get involved and get the opportunity. Uh, to practice mindfulness and maybe not these long mindfulness practices but something that's right for them because it's such a stressful environment and the more kind of anxious and stressed the teachers are the more likely it's going to go on to the children so children doing a, a little course is great but if the the teachers and the parents can learn about it then it's something that can be an ongoing thing for them so I think it's really important for that yeah mm -hmm. so they can be agents of change for children Wish I'd said that. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds you. so cool. <laughs> Agent mindfulness. <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, is that like um, role modelling the behaviour of yeah. being mindful of, of so responding, not reacting, and exactly. We exactly. kind of have to live that for children to get it as well, for it to be natural for them to do it. Although it can be taught. Of course. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. I think uh, children having been a teacher and I'm sure the parents know they pay a lot more attention to how you behave and how you are as a person than what you say and I'm sure there's parents that haven't actually even heard of mindfulness but they believe and behave in a mindful way so kind of pause and reflect before they they you know give a punishment out or a reward or you know respond to children and really kind of manage to be focused and present with them not easy things to do um, but I think I remember a you know meeting parents and parents evening after having taught children for a few months and you can almost tell quite often uh, because of the, the the way they kind of respond to me is the way the children sometimes respond to me too so yeah. it does definitely have that effect not always but quite often mm. Mm. yeah that's interesting yeah. isn't it yeah yeah exactly um okay so i wanted to ask you actually about the what your thoughts are then on the relationship between screen time and mindfulness I'm sure this is something that you either interesting yeah think about a lot talk about a lot I'm not sure yeah no I do I have thought about it quite a lot <coughs> I mean the screen time now is so high and to be honest even I use my phone and my laptop a lot but uh, the last time I looked I think the average screen time is like nine or ten hours a day that a people... day a day. A day, yeah, yeah. We're on a screen right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at you. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, no, it's oh my huge. Gosh. And the average time people check their phones is something like 100 times a day. So these things are kind of small distractions, but they build up. And I felt it most when I've gone on uh, things like retreats and things where they actually, you don't have access to your phone or your laptop. And I find that my mind becomes more clear, I naturally become more mindfulness and present. 
and just feel very different compared to going back to the kind of stream of being busy and on screens all the time. So I personally believe there is uh, definitely an impact of being on screens. It also definitely depends how you use your screen and what you're doing on there. Like, are you losing yourself in a reactive way and just going from you know social media notification to notification and same with email, or are you using it more consciously? So uh, just talking for myself personally, I actually use, I, I do some writing every day. So I use an app called Self Control, probably because <laughs> I don't have enough control. <laughs> it helps though. And you can actually just decide kind of which uh, different websites to block. So kind of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the others. So I just block all the ones that I don't want to use. So then I'm just on my Google Doc and I'm just able to focus for several hours. And every now and then I would try to go to social media and it wouldn't work. I'm like, oh. I'm glad they've got self-control app <laughs> so little tricks like that can actually help you know just switching my phone off or putting it on on airplane mode or leaving it behind before i go go for walks it feels weird for me to even go for a walk without my phone now i don't yeah. know about you yeah but it feels strange but then it feels so good as well um but we live in in such a massive ocean of information it's just huge something like you know one day of information now was like a hundred years of information back in the days so it is really uh we don't notice the impact on it i think it's so so big so reducing our screen time i think is a great thing to do uh first step is just to take small steps i think uh some of the things that i've shared there are certain apps that you can get on your phone um, but you can also use your phone in a positive way in terms of listening to mindful exercises. There's lots of mindfulness apps now. And some people are against that, but I think, you know, if you're already addicted to your phone, using it in a positive way in that way, I think it can be good as well. Um, so yeah, it's definitely an issue that, that we should um, be more kind of careful about. I was at my friend's house uh, when I was traveling recently and he had this plastic box and it had a timer on it. And they'd put two of their iPads in it and a phone in it and there was a timer. And so the, the box stays locked for a certain number of hours. Mm. And so it said it had like a nine hour timer. And then after that, they could use it. Have you seen one of those? No, that sounds great. It's a brilliant idea. Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking of getting that for myself, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, because of, yeah, I think as long as it's there, there's a temptation. I've also noticed if I have my phone in my pocket, even if it's switched off or in airplane mode, the fact that it's there, there's a certain psychological impact it has, and I know that it's available for me to check or to take photos. But if I don't have it on at all, I don't know, somehow it's a little bit more relaxing. I don't know if you've noticed that, but mm. there's an effect in that too. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's a huge issue, and especially I'm concerned about children as well, growing up in the generation where you just always see phones and always on the internet and the impact of that. So, yeah, something that's to, to be mindful about. I think, as you said, it's that thing about relationship, isn't mm. it, between... Mm yourself and how you're using your phone mm. and I read something recently about the signs of anxiety yeah. and that obsessive behaviours can be a result of anxiety mm. and um, or like watching things repet or doing the same things repetitively so I guess thinking about like OCD or whatever yeah. when we feel like we have control we feel less anxious mm. but I'm just imagining what it would have been like for me as a young person when I was struggling with anxiety if I'd had a phone yeah. I would have been glued to it I yeah. really think that would have been the case. Exactly, exactly. That and then it so. kind of puts a barrier between you and relationships and connection mm. with people that you need in mm. times of difficulty. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And it's just, it's just brought another thing to mind as well I wanted to share. Again, going back to the ACT stuff, ACT and Commitment Therapy, is that he, the, the founder of it, is against this idea of classifying things like this is anxiety, this is depression, this mm. is schizophrenia. Because of the, the kind of the manual that they came up with 
there's less and less uh, enthusiasm for the research to continue that. And he says that if we extrapolate the amount of things that they found, by the year 2050, there will be more diseases than there are people in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> so something's not quite right. Um, and he says that actually, when you look at all the research, there's actually one or two causes that underline all these different things. And it's a sign that our human brain is working normally. The normal way the human brain works leads to suffering. And it's because of what he says, what is the root of it, which is um, experiential avoidance. So you're just talking about anxiety. So people will check, oh, have I got anxiety? Have I not? But the very desire to avoid the anxiety is what drives the anxiety. Yeah. The very desire to avoid sadness is what drives more sadness. So this, this urge we have to avoid an experience is like putting fuel on fire. But if we start identifying, oh, I've got anxiety and I'm trying to get rid of it, or I've got depression, or I've got this, I've got that, and I'm trying to get rid of it, this is kind of, these are the boxes that we're in at the moment. And I think the next wave I'm hoping for the way kind of this world goes in terms of mental health is that actually all these things are because of as natural normal human beings we are going to experience these moments of suffering and that's what it is, means to be a human being and we need to learn the skills to be able to be with them in a healthy way and you, you don't learn this automatically you need to be educated in this so the skills of mindfulness of being present what we're saying about stepping back being the witness and to accept that yes i do feel sad at the moment and that's this is what it means to be a human being so um it's just something i wanted to share which i've been quite passionate about recently that's really yeah. interesting yeah so it's moving away from like labeling yeah which i would say is probably on the increase because of the awareness at the moment around mental health the the need for a label or a reasoning mm for a certain feeling or set of feelings hmm. might be on the increase. Yeah, sure. yeah, I think you may be right, yeah. Um, and I can see how in, in one sense it could pe pe put people's minds at rest, like there's something wrong with me, I don't know what's wrong with me, like okay, now I know it's this particular label. But actually it's not something that's wrong with that person, it's the way our human brains work. And when I discovered this actually quite recently, that suffering is actually a natural thing that we go through because of the way our minds work, and we need to use these skills to be with it, I think that makes a lot more sense to me actually and the fact that they found that experiential avoidance is at the root cause of everything you know from stress to burnout to anxiety to brush depression to episodes of schizophrenia so many different things i think that we're onto something really interesting at the moment mm. so, yeah. yeah hopefully it all you know sort of comes forward to yeah. help more people yeah 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 i think it's being used uh, certainly mindfulness is being in the, on the national health service it's going into schools so That's i think great. it's definitely going in that direction mm. Uh, but we've been classifying and putting people in boxes for so many years now. So, and if that's an unhelpful thing for people to do, then it's going to take some time to undo. But yeah, it sounds promising. We'll get there. Yeah, <laughs> solving all the world's problems yeah. in, in the next yeah, exactly. like decade. One podcast really? at a time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brilliant. So, uh, talk to us a little bit about the Museum of Happiness because this is a um, kind of an additional, yeah. thing, additional thing that you're doing. Yeah. So I'll share with it. So the idea for this came. So I was uh, volunteering for this event and um, it was a Dalai Lama event actually and I couldn't understand German, it was in Germany. So somebody was translating and the, the girl that was translating for me, uh, her dad started the Museum of Nonsense, the okay. Nonsium. So I'm like, what? The Museum of Nonsense? That sounds crazy. She's like, no, it's really successful. It's been going for 20 years. We get coach loads of people from Austria coming. I'm like, brilliant, sounds so good. And I was uh, 
I met this new friend Vicky and we were just thinking of a new project to do something to do with well-being and so I first of all came up with the Museum of Laughter because I'd just done some laughter yoga training so I googled that that didn't exist um, but then I kind of took it thought about it a bit more seriously I'm like what about a museum for happiness especially because I saw a advert for a fizzy drink that will not be named but the advert was something like drink happiness or spread happiness or something and it was people drinking this can with 13 spoons of sugar and fizzy water and I thought these marketing companies they're using the word happiness in a way that I think is not helpful so maybe we can challenge them by using the same word happiness to teach things that actually are helpful so that's when we I kind of combined the two googled museum happiness it didn't exist so I thought okay let's do let's um let's do an event so we did one or two or three three events actually we had 20 people 30 people 40 people so I thought next one we might have 50 people so so we're hoping for 50 people in Spinterfield's market but it went viral on Facebook so 1 million people saw it and we had 10,000 people wow. <laughs> I'm like friend uh Vicky we got this many people <laughs> and I think she was still drunk from New Year's Eve because it was just before New Year's Eve she's like oh yeah amazing I'm like you don't get it <laughs> got 10,000 people coming. <laughs> Uh, yeah, exactly. So I maxed out my credit card and I funded that event. And I was really glad that I did because we had these, you know, we had so much media attention and the BBC and, and so many people came. I thought, okay, so most of them were free tickets. I thought, oh, maybe they won't come. But actually a lot of them did come. <laughs> and we had this wonderful event and then we were invited to move into a back of a cafe, a canvas cafe in Shoreditch to actually start a kind of a mini permanent museum of happiness. So we did that for a year. Then we got ended up inviting, getting invited to the UK's biggest homeless hostel in Camden. So we started our non-profit there. And we're just teaching the skills based on from positive psychology. So um, we've actually come up with 10 ways to well-being, actually. The acronym is Happy World. So it's about happy habits, appreciation, sense of playfulness, sense of purpose, about your, you and your environment, wisdom and wonder, observe and be mindful, uh, important the relation the importance of relationships l stands for love and self-compassion and d's having a sense of direction so we we've looked at the positive psychology the science and then we do different kinds of workshops events classes based on that um and so yeah so we were in a homeless hostel for a year and then we were um using a venue in shoreditch again for a year and now we're in different venues uh, and we're not thinking of maybe even starting some sort of retreat center, something in nature, having spent quite a lot of time in nature in the last few weeks, we're thinking actually it'd be nice to get people out of the city. But the idea is we take the science of happiness, make it kind of fun and playful and engaging so that people can learn about it. Because there's loads of information. You, you go to a bookshop and there's loads of books on the science of happiness and wellbeing. There's loads of websites, but where do you actually go to learn about it? There isn't that much for that. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of trying to meet that need. Brilliant. Yeah. And the Museum of Happiness is open to anyone and everyone. Who exactly. To yeah, yeah. From age one to one million. One million. <laughs> one million year old. <laughs> one million year old. <laughs> I want to meet this person. <laughs> What's your secret? Not to happiness. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's open to everyone. We try to and we get people from all sorts of ages and backgrounds. And we even have prices that we try to keep it as accessible or even free as well. So the idea is to keep it as accessible as possible. Lovely. So what things then do you wish that you had known slightly earlier? You've obviously been on a really long journey of learning. Yeah. Um, there's a huge amount of knowledge that you've got now. What would you share with somebody who's like slightly earlier in the journey? Yeah, so 
I don't feel I've ever made any mistakes as such. I don't like to see it that way. I don't feel anyone does because I think everyone does the best they can in terms of the decisions they make at the time. So if we rewind back to my moment when I was with my careers advisor and I looked at that book and I looked at how much money the most would make and chose a degree based on that, I wish I'd obviously known about things like mindfulness and meditation and the importance of being present and all the things that I've shared, which I discovered later. Um, so yeah, this is something I would urge people to do. Like I'm particularly fascinated with uh, truth and about science and about well-being and about flourishing, how to create a flourishing life. And so because I found that passion, I kind of followed that passion with what I do. Um, so for anyone listening earlier in, in their careers or even students, um, try not to just think about money. I know people have to go on that journey and think, okay, if they're determined that you know they think money's, money's gonna make them happy, you can tell them as much as you want, but that's what they'll do for a while and hopefully they'll discover, they probably will, that that's not gonna lead to a life of fulfillment. Um, so yeah, do your research. If you're a bit of a science person and look at the evidence and the science on you know well-being and money, like lottery winners, what happens to them after they win the lottery, what happens to their well-being and happiness, look at people who are not so wealthy, what happens to them. Uh, so not making a decision based on finances alone, I would say is the first thing. What does the science say about that? So, um, so up to, the amounts kind of vary, but it's around, you know, in the UK it would be like 30 or 40,000 pounds. Beyond that, the amount of well-being that increases just totally flattens out. Really? So from zero to up to that number, because if you're kind of getting your food, your shelter, your clothing, uh, all your basic needs, and maybe, you know, some time for holidays and stuff. But beyond that, it really flattens out. So it makes no difference. Like if you're earning one million and you go to two million, you know, your happiness is not going to go up because there's always a sense of, actually, I could earn a bit more. I could earn a bit more. Mm. So, you know, once you get to like, you know, 40 or 50K in the UK anyway, if you make decisions based on putting loads of effort in to try and make them more money to the detriment of your relationships, that's one of the worst decisions you can make for your well-being and for for the people around you. I feel because of um, yeah, it would impact your well-being in a negative way potentially. So uh, that's the first thing. If you look at there's another interesting research on lottery winners and people who have had an accident that should get paralysed mm. from the neck down, and amazingly. Uh, the lottery winners after one year their happiness level goes back to what it was originally and sometimes lower because of you know they lose their friends and stuff like that because suddenly everybody wants to borrow money from you whereas <laughs> before they didn't and they're really upset if you don't give the money um, and people who'd had these kind of car accidents or accidents where they kind of got paralyzed you'd think that their well-being would go down and it does go down for a year or so but then it starts to go back up to what it was before and there's this thing in uh, positive psychology called post-traumatic growth, which is when people have a really difficult challenge, rather than it leading to a negative, for most people, a majority of people, there's a sense of a spiritual growth, a sense of greater meaning and purpose that they find. They suddenly realize, wow, I'm so lucky with what I've got. I'm so grateful that I've actually survived this. And actually there's this sense of uh, growth and seeing things from more from a positive perspective. So interestingly, even the big challenges that you have in your life can lead to a this post-traumatic growth. So yeah. Oh, I've not heard of that before. Yeah, 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 it's really- I mean, it makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah, and if you reflect on your life and other, and the listeners as well, you think of t the moments where you know, there's real difficulties. And people even quite often talk about it with things like cancer, when they get cancer, you think, you know, how's that the best thing that happened to your life? But they say, yeah, no, it really woke me up. I realized all the things I do have in my life that are really valuable. So I stopped focusing on the superficial things that weren't so valuable. 
So we don't have to wait for that. We can at any moment reflect on that. But when these things happen, they do wake us up to what really matters. So mm. it's interesting. Yeah. Shift in perspective. Yeah, exactly. So what other things would you like to share with us that you wish you'd known? Uh, what else would I like to have known? Well, this mindfulness stuff, I'd just like to say a little bit more about it because of up to age 20, 21, 22, I lived in the future, always for the future. So I didn't see the point of living in the present moment. I'm like, why would you even want to look at the trees or the flowers or the sky or the birds and all this stuff? I was constantly in my head and so always planning for a better future. So I'll be happy when I get here. I'll be happy once I get a good career or when my organization is successful or once I get married or once I, you know, and after that we'll be children. Be one thing after, I'll be happy if. And so this idea of actually, that's all fair enough. And yeah, we do need to spend some time doing some planning or thinking about the future. But I lent way too much into that. So if I'd actually had the opportunity to just take a moment to reflect, or if someone had told me, actually, the future's not the only place to be. In fact, the future never comes. You never actually get there. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you get there, you realize you can get the, the, the latest gadget or the latest holiday. But what happens at the end of that? Like, what next? What next? So reflecting on learning to take pleasure, to savor what they say in positive psychology, the present moment, something as simple as a lovely glass of water, taking the moment to savor these small things makes a really big difference. Uh, And talking about small things, this is another thing that I've discovered in the last year, which I wish I'd learned before, which is how powerful small things or tiny steps are. I know for habits, like every year, every time we come to a new year, people make these new year resolutions and most people break them. And it's not people, it's not to do with people's motivation because motivation is always going up and down for everyone, but it's to do with how you design your life. And so taking small steps, doing small things in a positive way regularly can make a huge difference. It has an exponential effect. And we know this for, you know, savings. If you save a small amount of money, but it happens every month, it actually has this kind of exponential growth and you can end up with a lot of money, great savings. And it's same with our lives where habits that we cultivate are almost like um, creating kind of a compound interest for our own well-being and the people around us. So doing small things like, you know, exercising for 30 minutes a day, even if it's something like walking, uh, doing one act of kindness every day, doing a little bit of mindful breathing, eating mindfully, doing these kinds of simple acts which are kind to other people or to ourselves they really have this compound effect and lead to more and more well-being. But the compound effect can also go the other way as well, in that if we take tiny steps to be, uh, to not take positive actions, to um, you know, not, not doing acts of kindness and all the other things that I've mentioned, but not really doing them all, perhaps leaning towards comfort rather than leaning towards the, the edge of our comfort boundaries, I think that can, that can have a bit of a negative, negative impact too. So the tiny, tiny steps is another one. A third one, having studied happiness, looking at happiness a lot, um, I think one of the mistakes that I make, and maybe others as well, is our definition of happiness and and thinking of happiness as feeling good. So if you look at our society, it's constantly, I just shared how one big company uses the word happiness. But if you look at the end of any Disney movie, you know, they always live happily ever after. Happiness is something like, although we have five or six core emotions, people focus and fixate ourselves as if we have to have this emotion all the time. And that's unhealthy. We need to be able to accept the whole range of emotions. So rather than to say to our child, I just want you to be happy, they can't be happy all the time actually. And so you're giving them a goal that's maybe unrealistic. 
so a nice definition of happiness that I like to use now is uh, leading a life which is rich, full and meaningful. So we're taking steps in the direction of what is, what is in line with my values, being mindful as I can as I go through that journey. And yes, there's going to be difficulties and challenges and sadness and anxiety and all these things. That doesn't mean I'm doing anything wrong. It just means that I'm living my life to the best of my ability and I can use my skills of mindfulness and my friends and family to help me support me through those difficult challenges. But to cultivate a rich, full and meaningful life is, I think, for me, a much more wonderful definition of happiness and something that's um, possible to do in every moment. Mm, I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. That feels like a really nice reframing of yeah. happiness. And yeah. yeah, as you were saying that, I was just thinking, yeah, I'm. what am I not tolerating because I of the the vision of happiness that I might hold for myself. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I recently did some really interesting um, body work therapy called somatic experiencing. Have you ever I heard of it? I've heard of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like the, the concept that the body holds on to trauma yeah. and um, feelings that are suppressed. Definitely. So if you, when you're a child, you're told to stop being silly or stop crying or whatever, that your body just, you, you kind of just swallow the feelings mm. and it's held on a cellular level mm -hmm. within your body. And what you do in somatic experiencing is that you have to breathe and feel the feelings no matter how scary they are good and if you don't you know that we don't want to feel them because it doesn't feel nice but once yeah. you have felt them then they can move through brilliant. you don't have to feel them anymore that's brilliant yeah, yeah yeah i think it's absolutely uh from everything i've seen on trauma research there's a famous book on it called the body keeps the score okay. and so this idea that it's the body is where where trauma is held and i think we all have traumas of different levels and it links very much to the basic science I was talking earlier about um, experiential avoidance. We have these difficult feelings, but we're told we have to be happy all the time, so we don't go there. But uh, with a caring therapist and creating that environment to allow that experience to come up. And and I think it can really help with physical ailments too. I know uh, one of my friends had a lot of uh, physical difficulties. And then as that person actually dealt with the trauma and allowed to... Um, ourself to actually feel it the physical ailments disappeared too interestingly isn't that amazing yeah so i think there's a lot of that happening as well um did you find it really helpful and powerful yes in that sense? yeah like and honestly, how many sessions was it is it is it i did instant or? three okay. sessions yeah. um but in the sessions it's about an hour and a half wow, wow. of breathing <laughs> great and feeling yeah but it's really incredible what comes up so it's almost like your body takes over and you mm. do this breath this cyclical breath and your body just starts to shake yeah and like honestly some of the tension i was feeling like at times felt like there was like real tension around my throat yeah and um in my shoulders and the lady i was working with said you know if you're feeling the shoulders just just move them out but we what we c can do as kids is if we want to reach out for a hug and we're not given one we can just hold the tension oh. in our shoulders and i thought isn't that like giving you a hug right now oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm all right i, I, I breathe right out <laughs> but like how we would never think about that yeah right and yeah. like yeah i think i'm not a parent myself so i can't yeah. comment on yeah. what it's like to yeah. be a parent are you a parent no no not so as far as i know <laughs> oh i'm gonna get some emails in now <laughs> now i'm sweating I'm getting some trouble. <laughs> so I know parents have got like a super tough job of uh, of raising children, mm, having jobs, yeah. looking after houses, all of that stuff. And then the 
the biggest job of all looking after little people's emotional mm. well-being and sure if you've not had a great experience of, of it yourself then you're just going to use that blueprint to parent your children mm-hmm. um but at, i think that the so so if you have experienced trauma it, yeah, we've all had those experiences yeah, definitely for sure every single one of us has been told to swallow our feelings at some point mm. but knowing that you can actually do something about it in the present in the here and the now nice is what i think is the message that everybody listening to this podcast needs to hear i hope so yeah and that's through mindfulness mm-hmm. acceptance compassion exactly mindfulness acceptance compassion stepping back from your thoughts so being the observer of your thoughts and then being a reflecting on your values and then taking meaningful action on those values i think that's something it's a beautiful model and way for living thank you so much Shamash. that has been such an interesting episode and i hope everybody is feeling inspired yeah yeah (laughs) so so thank you so much and i'm just going to say if anyone's listening to this we have got a little bit of bonus content coming up Mm. Shamash is going to do a very special guided meditation for you that you can access inside our Facebook group so um, I will let you know where you can access that but thank you so much Shamash once again thank you Sophia it's been a real pleasure great questions I really enjoyed it oh thank you and uh, (laughs) we'll see you soon I hope bye bye so I hope you enjoyed that episode of Things I Wish I'd Known I found it really fascinating I really enjoyed the conversation I had with Shamash And if you're interested in any of the work that he does, just check out the links in the podcast bio here um, and go and visit the Museum of Happiness in London if you can and check out some of Shamash's other work. So also we've got a special bonus for anybody who's in our Supporting Children Through Play Facebook group. Uh, Shamash recorded a special meditation for us, which is all about letting go of the baggage of the past and the expectations of the future. It's brilliant. So if you want to get access to that, come over and join our Facebook group. The link is in the bio in the podcast. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Mm